Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We thought all people were in some form or another. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle. We're back again this week with stories of murder and intrigue and more murder more murder <laughs> slightly less really? intrigue yeah. uh, oh and, and slightly <laughs> slightly nude people Ooh. yes <laughs> i am here for that thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> if this is your first time listening a special hello to you we've got a great show for you today but first let's head over to the newsroom Sorry, just a little yawn. Our news today. (laughs) (laughs) Did you, how how early did you wake up this morning? Oh, you know, 5.30. (laughs) Not on purpose. (laughs) God, not on purpose. (laughs) My alarm was set to go off at 7, and I woke up at like 6.15. I was like, dude, Mm -hmm. come on, body, (laughs) why you do this to me? Oh, struggle bus forever. (laughs) (laughs) So our news today comes from The Guardian. So COVID. So COVID. It's real. Let's just put that there. It's real. Yes. Guys. (laughs) Facts. Guys and gals. COVID's had differing effects on various people, some of it stemming from spending an increased time with other people at home. Mm-hmm. In this case, an unnamed man in Sussex voluntarily turned himself into the West Sussex police because he was hoping to get some peace and quiet in prison. <laughs> so Inspector Darren Taylor of the Sus- Sussex Police wrote on Twitter, quote, 
Peace and quiet. Wanted Mail handed himself in to the team yesterday afternoon after informing us he would rather go back to prison than have to spend more time with the people he was living with. And one in custody and heading back to prison to serve some further time on his own. <laughs> okay. so, so you could just be like, I need to go to jail, please. And they'll just be like, okay. Well, he was, no, he was already wanted on um, a warrant and okay. was just like, yeah. So he was like, you know what? I would rather s- serve the time that they're trying to get me on than stay with you crazy people. <laughs> was it his, do you know, if, did it say if it was his family or if it was just random people? It sounded, I would assume it was his family, but honestly, I don't think the article specified. Let me look here. No. It didn't really specify. It just said the people he was living with. That's it was like his so friends. interesting. It's like, could it be his wife? Could it be his mother or like yeah, a sibling? Or is it just complete <laughs> strangers that he just knows, you know? It's like, right. there's so many layers. Yeah. I I don't know. that I would be interested to know. But I, what I'll also say, too, is this article actually looks at some really interesting research into how people have kind of reacted in lockdown with each other. Mm -hmm. According to research from the University of Oxford, it shows uh, levels of stress, depression, and anxiety increased among parents and carers. Hmm. Uh, The relationship charity Relate also found that 23% of couples said they were struggling with their relationships. 8% of people realized they need to end their relationships due to lockdown, rising to 25% among couples aged between 25 to 34. And divorce inquiries raised 300%. I mean, I know a couple people who separated and got divorced during the lockdown. (laughs) I do love this idea of, like, now that I am actually forced to spend way more time, like, even, I feel like even when you're living together, y'all still got jobs to go to, like, mm-hmm. you still got errands to run, you're not, like, spending all day, every, every day. Moment. Yeah. Yeah. And this is really, like, put people in that position, if you're working from home or whatever, to be in that same space a lot longer. So I love this idea that it's cluing people in earlier, like maybe this isn't the person for me. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. I haven't had, I mean, people close to me, I really haven't noticed like that, but like definitely Mm -hmm. I, you know, I had a couple like distant friends that have definitely like separated from their significant other or like totally broke up with their boyfriend and girlfriend. So right. it's been interesting <laughs> to yeah. see. I'm like, I'm over here like, yeah, I don't know those problems. Like <laughs> you went out and did the opposite. You went out I know. <laughs> and got married. <laughs> like, meh, fuck the mm-hmm. statistics. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to move on to Netflix and kill. This week, we are talking about a documentary called Made You Look, A True Story About Fake Art. I watched this. (laughs) Yeah, it's, first of all, it's good. (laughs) I really, I really liked it. It's a lot better than that Mormon documentary I watched, too. Oof. We're going to talk about that on the next episode. I actually also really enjoyed that, but we'll talk about it on the next episode. (laughs) 
So this documentary looks at one of the largest forgery scams, potentially the most successful in U.S. history. In 1995, the prestigious Nodler Gallery began purchasing paintings from a woman named Glafir Rosales. She claimed that she had found this unknown canvas that was a Mark Rothko uh, mm-hmm. selling it to the gallery's director and Friedman for $750,000. Friedman then took the painting, which lacked provenance, which is kind of like the history of the buying mm-hmm. and selling of Proof the artwork. that it existed. <laughs> yeah. And that it came from the artist. Mm-hmm. So she took the painting and uh, had a wide range of experts declare that it was actually a real Rothko. The gallery sold it for $5.5 million. At that point, Rosales began bringing in Jackson Pollock paintings, I think a couple more Rothkos, mm-hmm. which the gallery scooped up and sold for millions. Over a 10-year period, Rosales brought 60 other abstract expressionist paintings to Friedman and the Nodler, adding up to $80 million sold. But the big issue here is every single one of those paintings was a forgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as somebody from the art world, um, (laughs) art's like kind of a thing that you do, I would say. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely, and I think the documentary really looks at this idea of sort of elitism in the art world. Oh, God, yeah. And... Definitely talks about this topic of nobody really wanting to be wrong and nobody really Mm -hmm. wanting to admit that they got fooled by a fake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I mean, obviously, we're talking about transactions worth millions of dollars. Like, and in this case, Glafir Rosales was the only person to actually be charged and convicted on any crime related to the forgeries yeah there were a couple lawsuits that got settled and such but what are your thoughts on this i mean so i've worked in museum spaces and i worked in more contemporary museums so we were buying stuff from like living artists or more recently deceased artists and there is a hundred percent elitism there is a hundred percent this sort of i mean it's hard to describe but people are i mean it is a con man's game Even if you're not selling forgeries, you are trying to convince a person in the gallery game to buy something that they 100% do not need. And most of the time, you are really creating this cachet of people who are filthy rich that you just bring stuff to, right? And the people who are collecting it aren't collecting it because they love art. They're collecting it because it's an asset. It's an asset that they can write off somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole like the gallery system is is I hate it. I worked in a couple galleries. I think it's the most deplorable aspect of the art world besides um auction houses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that museums are any better, but I mean, you know, museums are trying to do better and then there's, you know, community art gallery spaces. So I I tend to go more towards that direction because we're not trying to swindle people. You're not trying to make a commission that's worth hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars right it's this it's a game it's all a game and it's a very small amount of people who actually are in the gallery game there's like Mm -hmm. a handful of people that own multitudes of galleries under different names it's disgusting yeah 
it just if you if you get to the end of the documentary where they're going to court and you see you know the gallery owner and what's her name i just forgot her name <laughs> ann friedman ann friedman yeah if you see them you can just tell like the smug look looks on their faces like they know what they're doing yeah gallerists know a hundred percent that they are swindling a person in some capacity or other yeah all i can say is buy stuff from living artists don't try to start a collection with fucking famous people go and buy something from a living person because you're paying for the other aspect of it is these gallerists and auction houses are controlling the art market they dictate what the art market is they're the yeah. ones saying ab x people are going to be the ones worth millions you have outsider artists that are going to be worth a couple thousand dollars and then on a whim they go "Ooh, you know what's really hot right now social justice so we're going to change to this instead and we're going to start pushing these artists and this type of art it's all the whims of the elite and yeah it's gross <laughs> yeah well and i think honestly like this sort of the money involved with this kind of buying and selling definitely attracts that sort of elitism thing you know i think you talk about people with extreme wealth buying these as a form of assets but i do think there's mm -hmm. an aspect to it that's like a status symbol to be oh, like yeah, i own a jackson pollock i own a mark rothko like there's a couple other really great documentaries on netflix about collectors mm -hmm. there's one ugh, i'm forgetting his name it's another husband and wife team who collect before uh it's like ab x Ab expressionists uh, up until the like the twenties, but okay. He talks about like how he got into collecting, and it was literally because he wanted to look better than the guy he was working with. And it's yeah. just like, you know, what would make you look better? I don't know. Donating millions of dollars to charity would definitely make <laughs> you look better than buying millions of dollars right. worth of art that they right. don't even put out on display. It's in a warehouse. It's like, why are you even collecting this if you're not going to show it? It's infuriating. <laughs> At least if you're donating your money to like some sort of philanthropic cause, we know you're still trying to use that as a tax write-off, but at least we feel better about that. Yeah. <laughs> just throwing your money into art that's going to sit in a warehouse somewhere to make you look cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the one downer about like, so teaching art, going to art school is you're doing all this stuff to impress a bunch of people who actually have no idea what they're talking about. And it's all about their opinion and not facts. So it's like, why are you trying to, the other thing is like, why are you trying to make ab abstract expressionist art like worth a bajillion dollars? There's so many of those artists, right? Yeah. If you think about supply and demand, those should be on the lower end because there's so much of that art occurring, whereas mm. other movements of art, there isn't as much. So those should be worth more. But that's not how the art market works. <laughs> right. Right. It's not a logical thing. No, it's sort completely of, sort of like illogical. the stock market. Exactly. Everything we won't is, go money there. is fake. Everything is made up. Okay. <laughs> We're living in a simulation. My whole life is a lie. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that again is called Made You Look, a true story about fake art. It's on Netflix right now. Definitely check it out. I think it's an interesting little peek behind the curtain. 
This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for our listeners. We are talking about murder, attempted murder, <laughs> debt, greasy men, <laughs> greasy, gross men, um, oh, infidelity. Mm-hmm. What else? I don't know. If you're not into any of that, then you Pelvic should just skip this <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That. Mine is going to be really weird, guys. That's all you need to know. This week, we are covering some murder for hire. Some people decide they don't want to get their hands dirty and want to hire a third party, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't understand what makes somebody be like, I'm going to try to find somebody to kill my husband today. <laughs> That's sounds like a thing and i saw it doing some research there's some cases of people like reaching out to somebody on facebook or (laughs) there's a website i found this really great rolling stone article i should i should have kept it aside there's a website called i think it's called rent a hitman that (laughs) was set up initially as actually like a a web development project Mm-hmm. Like getting a hit on a website. And they made this kind of joke website and they've gotten a couple of people writing inquiries <laughs> in to get a hit mad that they then turn over to the FBI and the FBI kind of. Oh my God. Are you that there. dumb? Why is everybody so yeah. dumb? <laughs> it's a really, it's a really interesting. Let me go. I'll tell you. So when you go to the website, it says. All U.S.-based field operatives have been vaccinated against COVID-19. <laughs> they have a two-for-one special using <laughs> using promo code Miranda. <sighs> they talk about your privacy. Got a problem that needs resolving. With over 17,985 U.S.-based field operatives, we can find you a solution that's right for you. <laughs> Since 1920, Rent-A-Hitman has assisted satisfied clients from all walks of life, ranging from regular citizens parentheses, children and adults, and parentheses, to government <laughs> employees and even political figures, Rent-A-Hitman has seen it all and know just how to precisely handle your delicate situation in a timely manner while maintaining 100% compliance with HIPAA, <laughs> uh, which stands for Hitman Information Privacy and Protection Act of 1964. <laughs> so people go to this website, they still think it's real, and then they'll try to like... <laughs> sent in something it's really funny take a look it's it's you can find it on your unless i mean it might trigger like an fbi file on you but i mean we already have one so it's fine (laughs) yeah that's why i'm not that worried about i'm just like whatever so we're talking about hired hitman today and specifically i'm gonna be looking at a man named robert o marshall now robert marshall was married to maria marshall the two had three sons and lived in new jersey Marshall is oftentimes described as a successful insurance salesman who had a taste for gambling, although his work in the community always gets mentioned, too. He was the chairman of the Ocean County chapter of the United Way Fund. So, upstanding dude, right? Right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Oftentimes, he went to the casinos in Atlantic City. Eventually finding himself deeper and deeper in debt. In between all of this, Marshall found time for an extramarital affair with a woman named Saran Crowshar, who, along with her husband, went to the same country club as the Marshalls. So her name was like Saran Rap. 
It might be Saran. It's probably Saran. S-A-R-A-N-N. <laughs> Saran? Or Saran? We're going to say Saran rap. <laughs> <laughs> the relationship had progressed far enough that the two had discussed plans to leave their respective partners, started playing, planning to buy a cottage together, and begin putting joint assets into a safe deposit box. Interesting. On September 6, 1984, both Robert and Maria Marshall were examined by a doctor in relation to an additional insurance policy they were looking at taking out. In the evening of the 6th, the Marshalls went to Atlantic City for dinner and gambling. Then, on the drive home, one of the tires on the car began giving them some trouble. So Marshall pulled into a rest stop off of the Garden State Parkway to try and fix the car. Mm-hmm. While outside of the car and looking at the tire, Marshall was hit on the head and knocked out. And Maria was shot twice and killed. Oh, wow. Marshall also claimed that $15,000 worth of casino winnings had been stolen and that when he came to, he discovered his wife dead in the car and called police. This is where our story begins. (laughs) (laughs) During their investigation, police turned up a number of extremely suspicious things. First, they uncovered a number of phone calls from Marshall to a man named Robert Cumber, After meeting Marshall at a party, Cumber had learned that Marshall was seeking an investigator to look into some missing casino winnings he had given to Maria, along with if she had any knowledge of his ongoing affair. Hmm. Cumber then put Marshall in touch with a man named Billy Wayne McKinnon, who was actually going by Jimmy Davis. So Marshall knew him as Jimmy Davis. So this man was hired to do the investigation into his wife. Police asked Marshall about any connections with either Jimmy Davis or Billy Wayne McKinnon, but he refused to answer these questions on the advice of his attorney. And shortly after this interview with police in September 1984, Marshall ended his affair with Crowshar. He then checked into a Best Western in a room that he and Crowshar had like frequented over the course of their affair. He called each of his sons, along with making tape recordings for each son, with one for his secretary and one for his brother-in-law, who was also an attorney. He took all of these tape recordings to the hotel front desk, where they were placed with the outgoing mail. Then Marshall added a truckload of sleeping pills to a soda with the intent to commit suicide, but had accidentally fallen asleep before he could drink it. Okay. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) in my head, I'm like, I mean, you. How? I don't. He's too sleepy for sleeping pills. I guess. I guess. So hotel staff had alerted police that Marshall was staying at the hotel, and after being unable to reach him by phone, the police like came in, busted into his hotel room. He was transported to a hospital and then later was transported to a Philadelphia psychiatric unit for observation. Police also recovered the tapes that he made that were placed into the outbox at the hotel and listened to them only after they had received a warrant. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) They made a very big point of putting that in and I thought... 
did they? (laughs) When the investigation began to wind down, police alleged that Marshall had carried out a murder-for-hire plot in which he planned to collect on approximately $1.5 million in life insurance policies, most of which had been taken out in the months before Maria's murder. Hmm. He planned to use this money to pay off his debts, which included a 128000 home equity loan and a short-term bank debt in excess of $40,000, as well as finance and legitimize his affair. That was the plan. So police go out. They arrest Cumber, who, remember, was the dude he met at the party, mm-hmm. Marshall, and then McKinnon, who was this kind of contact that he was using for the investigation. All of these guys would be tried as co-defendants in this case, but police really wanted to do the old flipperoo and mm-hmm. uh, struck a plea deal with McKinnon, where they offered a lighter sentence and the option of being put into the witness protection program in exchange for testimony naming Marshall as the trigger man. Hmm. Instead, McKinnon named a man named Larry Thompson, who Marshall had actually never met. This is now a fourth dude uh, who's (laughs) entered the picture that's like, Who's How many people guy? do you need to kill your wife? <laughs> right. Enough to get plausible deniability. That's how many. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is from the opinion written in State v. Marshall, quote, McKinnon testified that Marshall hired him not to investigate his wife, but to kill her. He testified that Marshall had paid him 20000 or $22,000 prior to the murder Then an additional $15,000 was supposed to have been available for him in Marshall's pockets at the scene of the homicide, and that $50,000 more was to be paid to him out of the insurance proceeds. McKinnon testified that the Oyster Creek picnic area had been selected with Marshall's concurrence as the crime scene by prearrangement. Marshall was to feign car trouble on the way home from Atlantic City and pull into the picnic area on the pretext of checking to see what was wrong with his car. According to McKinnon, he had dropped off co-defendant Thompson at the picnic area before the marshals arrived and then had driven back to the toll plaza just south of the picnic area to await their car. He testified that the prearranged plan was for Thompson to hit Marshall on the head without seriously injuring him and then to shoot and kill his wife. McKinnon testified that he had seen the Marshall's car pass him at the toll plaza, and after delaying a few minutes, he had proceeded into the picnic area. When he got there, Marshall was lying on the ground, and Mrs. Marshall had been shot. Thompson got into McKinnon's car with Maria Marshall's pocketbook and cash from Marshall's pocket, and then got out of the car in order to slash the right rear tire on Marshall's car to support his anticipated explanation for having driven into the picnic area. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they set this whole elaborate thing up. They then drive out of the picnic area down the southbound lane of Garden State Parkway. They were seen by another motorist who was able to describe McKinnon's car and noted that it was like going at this crazy rate of speed. Of course, Marshall testified that he was unable to identify the perpetrators, but hypothesized that they had tampered with his tire and followed his car from Atlantic City in order to rob them. So that's his story. (laughs) 
I wonder what he said to his wife to get to, like, pull over, you know? Oh, this tire feels funny. You really think that was it? I don't know. I'd be like, the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Well, I think there's sometimes if you're driving in a... Okay, let me preface this by saying I have had quite a few cars with quite a few car problems, first of all. (laughs) There is some weird shit that can happen with cars. And there are times where you can, like, as the driver, feel either your car pulling or, like, a weird vibration or... You know, here, especially if it's a car that you like drive every day, you're super familiar with. If there's a different sound to the car, it's like, oh shit, something's wrong. So I could see him being like, oh, it feels like, you know, the car's getting pulled. I just want to take a look at this tire. It just doesn't feel right. Maybe loose tire, you know, it's wobbling. Mm hmm. I don't know. I just feel like like I've I've also I've had a car that had like an axle issue, so it appeared like the wheel was going to fly off at any point, and it really wasn't. It was yeah. just a little crooked. And people would constantly be like, "Your tire looks like it's gonna fall off all the time," like all the time to the point where if someone was like, "Roll your window down, roll your window down," I was like, "Nah, I'm good." <laughs> <laughs> I know tire. <laughs> So, uh, I don't know. I feel like if I was the wife, I'd be like, okay, we can just do that when we get home. Like, I'd be like, you don't need to pull over. Or go to a gas station and what can you do in the middle of nowhere? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know. So, this might be a dumb question. We all know I'm not the best at geography. How far is Atlantic (laughs) City from New Jersey? Or is Atlantic City in New Jersey? Um, yes. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Atlantic City is in New Jersey. It just depends on where about in New Jersey they were going to or fro. <laughs> um, it was called, oh, I couldn't even tell you. Temple <laughs> something or other. I couldn't tell you. I guess I'm I'm wondering how far the the distance between like Atlantic City and their destination was. Because if it's like an hour or two, right? Yeah, and but I mean, like you're going on a. I mean, New Jersey's known for its turnpike, so they're probably on a turnpike. So there's probably lots of pl- like gas stations and stuff that you could turn off of. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Tom's River, New Jersey, is where they were from. So let's see. We're gonna do some maps live in the <laughs> live in the podcast. Live maps. <laughs> we're doing investigation work. What did I say? Tom's River. Tom's River. Okay, so it's like a 51-minute drive on a toll okay. road. Yeah, so there's going to be other places to pull off besides, you know, effectively nowhere oasis. <laughs> yeah, a rest stop, a, a picnic area. Yeah. I'd be like, you're going to a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> At least a gas station, I I yeah. would do. Because um, they talk about it being like a things. <laughs> they talk about it being like a darkened picnic area too. So it's like, oh my God. yeah, really? no. See, I'm. Mm, I'd be that wife. I'd be like, actually, you're gonna go to a gas station. <laughs> yeah. So. Marshall was ultimately convicted of capital murder on March 5th, 1986, receiving a sentence of death by lethal injection. 
Cumber was convicted as an accomplice and received life in prison with the possibility of parole, which he received in 2006. McKinnon, as previously discussed, pled guilty to conspiracy and received five years, of which he served one. And Thompson, interestingly enough, was acquitted of murder in 1986, thanks to testimony from his family that he was in Louisiana at the time of the killings. Hmm. Okay. Following the trial, the whole story got the attention of Joe McGinnis, who is a true crime author. He wrote a book about the case called Blind Faith in 1989 that became a bestseller and eventually was turned into an Emmy-nominated TV miniseries of the same name. (laughs) Well then. Yeah. (laughs) Now, of course, Marshall continued to proclaim his innocence. He even wrote a book in response to Blind Faith in 2002 to dispute all of the claims made. The name of the book is called Tunnel Vision, Trial and Error. In the book, Marshall claimed a number of things, including that his trial had been fraught with police misconduct, compromised testimony, and evidence. In June 2003, the Supreme Court of the United States released an opinion that effectively increased the standard for defense attorneys at death penalty trials, allowing Marshall to petition the courts for ineffective assistance of counsel during the death penalty phase of his trial. So not during the actual like conviction, but just during the sentencing phase. Mm-hmm. So this petition for ineffective assistance was accepted. And in May 2006, prosecutor Kelleher... Kala, Kalar, Kalar. <laughs> sure. Yep. Declined to retry the death penalty phase of the case, essentially putting the sentencing into limbo. At the time, Marshall was looking at a minimum of 30 years, which would have put his release in 2014 or a maximum of life with the possibility of parole after eight years. In another interesting turn in this case, Oh boy. Nearly 30 years after the murder of Maria Marshall, we would hear again from Larry Thompson in (sighs) 2014. Now, at this point, like I said, it was 30 years after the murder. Um, He was 71 years old and he was serving a 50 plus year sentence for armed robbery and attempted murder in another case. Police began questioning Thompson about another murder, like a third murder that happened (laughs) in Shreveport when he confessed to actually being the trigger man in Maria Marshall's murder. He admitted that he used a false alibi in Maria's murder investigation, saying that um, initially it said that he had been with his son at the dentist at the time Mm -hmm. of the killing what actually happened is his wife had gone with their son to the dentist and he was he was able to back this up because when she went to make a payment to the dentist she signed his name Mm -hmm. so they had paperwork with his signed name on it saying he was at the dentist at this day and time so they were able to like (laughs) Gotcha. Uses fake, fake alibi. It wasn't Mm -hmm. planned like that. Like, it wasn't like, go to the dentist, sign my name. She just had done that, and he found out Hmm. about it afterwards and was like, perfect. I'm going to use that. (laughs) 
So his son would actually recant the alibi as well, saying that it was actually his mother who had taken him. But unfortunately, because he had been tried and acquitted at the time, mm-hmm. Thompson wasn't able to be tried again under double double jeopardy laws. Yep. Likewise, the witnesses who had lied or misled police in regards to the alibi were, were unable to be charged due to the statute of limitations on perjury. Um, which I think in New Jersey is like five years. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> this is, like I said, 30 years later. They're not going to try to charge him for that. Marshall was scheduled for his first parole board hearing in March 2015. And two of his three sons vowed to testify at this parole hearing for their mother's sake. Two of the three sons are very adamant that, like, they need to stand up for what he did to their to their mother which i'm like that's Mm -hmm. i can't imagine being in that position of having one parent kill another and like yeah try to sort of grapple with like like how to deal with that i can't even imagine i mean my parents sure did try (laughs) (laughs) like you guys can just take each other out see you later (laughs) (laughs) so his Parole hearing was scheduled for March 2015. However, in February 2015, after complications from a debilitating stroke, Marshall died while still incarcerated. And that's it. So (laughs) (laughs) that is that. (laughs) That's that. I just found it a really interesting story with all of these developments. Like, when a case spans that long, where it's like stuff is still happening, this guy just confessed, this Mm -hmm. thing got appealed. And that happens sometimes too when. Supreme Court makes a decision that sort of not all the time, but sometimes they do back. They're like backwards acting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just really thought this case was interesting. Yeah, that was definitely, definitely a wild one. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, Vicky. Janelle. How do you feel about male strippers? <laughs> okay, so confession time. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Ooh. No, I Give have been deets. to a single, I have been to a strip club one time. Mm-hmm. And it is, I will not say the name of it, but <laughs> it was a two-floor strip club where they had women on the bottom and men on the top floor and we had gone for Mm -hmm. like a it was like a 21st birthday i think okay okay so Uh weird it was so weird it was um fun don't get me wrong it's not something i really like i really want to go to the strip club like it's not i'm just yes it was weird (laughs) and kind of gross I only have experience with burlesque, which is a completely different echelon yes. of stripping. Burlesque, I would 100% to be, be down to go and see. 
Now, I have seen uh, one or two men in a burlesque review, but they don't see the, the fun thing about burlesque is the men don't usually strip. It, they're usually there as a comedy routine. So okay. if you go to a very traditional burlesque show, you're going to have female burlesque dancers and maybe a few guys doing, you know, some fun comedy. And then there's also a reverse burlesque where a woman dresses up as a man and does a routine. It's pretty great. Yeah. I went to a nerd-themed burlesque the last time. See, I would so do there that were people- <laughs> It was so fun. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, that is really great and exciting. But are you familiar with the male stripper group Chippendales? <laughs> I mean, who I isn't? Mean, who isn't, right? Who isn't familiar with Chippendales? Even if you don't know the actual male stripping troupe, you do remember the skit that Chris Farley did with Patrick Swayze on SNL. Like, everyone remembers that. Of course. And the tale today that I am going to tell you involves bow ties, oiled men thrusting, and of course, murder. Of and course. well, also attempted murder. There's a lot of almosts and maybes and oopsies in oh this my story. Gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, firstly, we're going to get a little history on the Chippendales. Okay. The Chippendales is a male stripper entertainment organization that was actually founded in 1975 by Soman Banerjee, also known as Steve. He was an Indian immigrant who came to this country, and he wanted to start a new life for himself. So he decided that he was going to get into the entertainment industry. So he got his friend Cash Chandani to help him out, and they together bought a West Los Angeles bar named Destiny 2, which was failing at the time. Okay. It was the partying 70s, so things were kind of winding down in the mid-70s, and the entertainment industry at this time was taking a new direction and moving away from, like, the disco. Yeah. Before the end of the year, Chandani sold his part of the company to Bruce Naheen, a local entertainment lawyer, and Paul Snyder, a businessman. Now, the interesting side story that I'm going to tell you is Paul Snyder was actually a murderer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> You've probably heard this story before, but Paul Snyder killed his estranged playmate wife, Dorothy Stratton, in 1980 and then killed himself. Oh. It was a very, very big story. And this act that he did where he killed his, his estranged wife and himself eliminated him from the business. So he got into it and then immediately, like, did this and was out of it. <laughs> wow. So. And that's there's a, the there's story. There's a lot of no. murder. Yes, and that is the end. No, I wish that was the end. But it's <laughs> Around 1979, Naheen convinced Banerjee to change the name. He said, maybe we should think about something a little bit more classy. Let's do Chippendales. And they wanted to feature only male dancers because that wasn't a thing. If you're not familiar, the term Chippendale is actually a piece of furniture. Mm. Mm. So the thought process was that they wanted to imbue some class into their act. So the name coupled with their classic bow tie and cuffs meant that they were high end. Uh, I just feel like calling <laughs> a person by by a furniture name is like, you are an object. Exactly. Like, the oh Davenports. God. Oh, yes. The sofas. The sofas. <laughs> the Ottomans. <laughs> oh, my God. So after they changed the name, the club started to take off. They had their signature look, their signature name, and they were like the only male stripping joint in the town. 
So they got so big that they started to open up locations in New York, Philadelphia, and England, and all across Europe. They even began a touring troupe that traveled around from different location to different location. So the Chippendales was being developed as a brand not unlike Playboy. They had a very specific look. They had the bow ties and they had the chiseled physique. Everyone had a very specific training regimen that they had to go through. The dancers were just very, like, regimented. Now, I found a clip. Okay. And I want us to watch it. Oh, it's God. this YouTube clip right here, so you okay. can click on it to see it on your screen. We're going to okay. play it right now. I think it's, like, two minutes long. It's This is a workout video. Oh, my God. For the Chippendales. Lots of thrusting. Romance starts out with something small, a gesture, a look. In aerobics, it's called the warm up. Just the bouncing is is really gonna get you. Oh my god. <laughs> Okay, so there's a guy rolling his shoulders. I feel like we should describe this. Yes, it's um, (laughs) so it's Chippendale dancers doing these very like sexualized thrusting, hip gyration, hip gyration, dance movements. So it's like thrusting circles, bouncing their ass up and down like it's basketball. They're never wearing a shirt. Also, that is definitely some pelvic thrusting. Holy smokes. Was not ready for that. There's some jumping, pushing, it's a pushing, lot of ass whoop. bouncing, twerking. So much ass this bouncing. This is 80s twerking. This is like pre twerk, okay? So these yeah. are all warm ups and exercises to get them in shape, but also to get. <laughs> some of these, I'm not honestly sure what they're supposed to be doing. If it's just a cardio aerobic thing, it really is. But this it's... is also. Part of how their dances were, they had some like high energy, high impact aspects of their dances. Oop, just to started get them over all an sweaty and oily and glistening, uh, right? Yeah. So they did a lot of high energy stuff in the beginning, and then they would go out to the audience and they would grab a woman, or they would start twerking on a lady, or start thrusting their dicks into a woman's face. This is why I don't understand male strip clubs. <laughs> yeah. There is so, nothing about a dick and balls that I want thrusting in my face. <laughs> I'll tell you what, male strip clubs now are not like that one. <laughs> this is right. the year 2021. <laughs> the dance moves, while they haven't improved much, have improved a little. Yes. It's more Magic Mike now. It's more slow motion like themed yeah um and it's very so if you think of like your like literally your standard 80s sort of like richard simmons like very high energy workout stuff Mm -hmm. that doesn't actually look super effective but is really just like bouncing and shimmying body parts around Mm -hmm. all the time like it's like really weird dancer sizing (laughs) Dancer sizing, yes. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link to this in the episode yes. notes. You guys can watch for yourself. Oh my god. Fun fact, this year they actually during the pandemic put out a series of Chippendales exercise videos for people to do. It's not like this. It's actual okay. legit exercise. Yeah. So 
I feel like now they probably take their workout regimens and stuff a lot more seriously. Like, there's definitely they more do. of a culture of, like, the gym rat kind of mm-hmm. getting muscle tone and, do you know, that they. I think they would probably feed into really well. Yeah, this time period is more about, like, lean and muscular, where now mm-hmm. it's more like you're bulked up. Yeah. Um, which I – that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. I – I just don't get it. But the other aspect during this time period is so you have these like lean and muscular staying fit. But there was also a shit ton of steroids and cocaine, to be perfectly honest, that was really kind of helping the lean and muscular aspects of this. Right, right. So (laughs) it's not all thrusting exercises. There is some steroids and cocaine into the mix. (laughs) There is some drugs also. It is the 70s into the 80s, so there's a mm, lot of drugs. Lots of drugs. <laughs> now, the two developed the Chippendales aesthetic, like, a lot, and it was super recognizable. And then in 1981, they decided to add, like, a really solid choreographer, and that was Dick Nanoya. Now, Nick Nanoya was this immaculate choreographer. He had a lot of accolades and he was invited to supervise show routines because they wanted to elevate it even further. Now, this picture that I put in here, if you're looking. I am. Was before really Nick Denoya got into the mix. So you you can see there is a Chippendale dancer pre before they had all of this stuff for Chippendales on the floor getting his pants ripped off by a lady. <laughs> yeah, so he's got his back flat on the floor and his legs straight up at a 90 degree angle and there's just women pulling his pants straight up into the air. Yes. That's what so we're looking like, at. <laughs> we, we don't want this. We want high-end class. So that's why a lot of the you know, regiments and the outfits and the choreography started to come into play. They're like, we don't want ladies just ripping clothes off of dudes. Like, that's not what we want. So Denoya did a lot of shows. He even did some choreography on Broadway, and he also directed and produced. And he was a five-time Emmy Award-winning director. So he has a lot of accolades. So not only are they adding class, but they're adding a reputation to this business. Chippendale's success soon led to other competitive clubs popping up, and this drove Banerjee a bit crazy. He went around town threatening to sue all of these places and even went as far as to have a few of them burned down. (laughs) Arson! Okay, all right. That, like, went from zero to 60. Yes, real crazy. Like, friendly competition and fire. (laughs) Yes. So Banerjee claimed that he was trying to protect the brand, which led to many fights between him and Naheem. But the contention was even hotter between Banerjee and choreographer Denoya, as Denoya was getting even more famous because of Chippendales. Naheen, for the longest time, acted as a go-between between Banerjee and Denoya. And this eventually, this contention led to a separation of Denoya and him taking the traveling dance troupe on the road. Now, the traveling dance troupe paid Banerjee to use the name, but didn't really pay him anything additional. See, This is a weird transaction that happened that shifted the fate of Chippendales and eventually led to somebody being murdered. Okay, so at this point, you had, like, Chippendales, the locations, and then the road troop were, like, two separate things, right? Just just sharing a name. Yeah, so it's kind of like when you want to open up, like, a Culver's location and you're a franchise. So this is a franchise of Chippendales. 
Gotcha. Okay. So, in an article, the transaction was outlined as Nick DeNoia wrote an agreement on a napkin that he had the right to take Chippendales on the road and own it in perpetuity. Basically, Banerjee signed away part of the business because he didn't know what the word perpetuity meant. And in case you're challenged when it comes to the law, like most of us, perpetuity basically means that there is no fixed set of time on this transaction. So he basically could use the name and get all the money that he was getting forever. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oops. Should have hired a better lawyer. Well, there were no lawyers involved whatsoever, so that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's uh... we can't have napkin agreements, guys. <laughs> My advice here's the thing: is a napkin <laughs> agreement can be enforceable, mm-hmm. but you should not. Well, I'm going to say I'm not giving legal advice. First of all, <laughs> but you personally would not. I, pers- do that. <laughs> I personally would never sign a napkin agreement, and you mm-hmm. should always consult an attorney when signing a contract. Mm-hmm. Just saying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, this transaction of led Banerjee to become obsessed with becoming the sole proprietor of Chippendales. In 1987, he set some plans in motion. First, Banerjee sued Denoya for violating his touring agreement. He stated he was using the name and not paying his dues for the use. The difficulty with this was the contract that they signed was... <laughs> Loose, we'll say. Loose, very loose. And yeah. didn't outline anything. <laughs> oh, my God. Because napkin agreements. <laughs> right. So the court dealing started to not go so well. So he decided, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to take care of this myself. He decided to hire a man named Ray Cologne, a quote unquote hit man. We'll just say that because you're going to find out why. <laughs> okay. He wanted to take Denoya out. Now, Banerjee mistakenly thought that Cologne was part of the mob, which is why he thought he was a hitman, when in reality, (laughs) he was not at all. He just happened to live in New York in an area where a lot of mafiosas lived. I mean, I also feel like that's quite a judgment to assume that every mafioso is a hitman. I'm sure there's specialties. Right? Every Italian is in the mafia. Excuse you. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god. So, there weren't actually any records of Ray Cologne being involved in any other hits outside of the instance that we're talking about right now. So, (laughs) effectively, he was not a hitman. (laughs) Oh my god. Now, this is from an article from a New York newspaper that I'm going to read for you right now. April 1987. An Emmy-winning television producer and choreographer who staged the original routines of the Chippendales, male strippers, was shot to death in his office in the Garment District yesterday afternoon, and the police said the motive was unknown. The victim, Nicholas Denoya, 46 years old, was found on the floor of his 15th floor office at 264 West 40th Street at 3.40 p.m. by a person who had come there on business. He had been shot once in the left cheek with a large caliber handgun. The authorities said the assailant may have been an unidentified man, about 35 to 40 years old, who was seen near the office before and after the shooting. In the cheek? Oh my god! In the cheek. So, (sighs) they rolled up on him while he was in New York and shot him in his office. This is the office that he used as kind of like the headquarters for the, the traveling aspect of the Chippendales dance group. 
Now, he didn't have – it was – I don't know if you've seen a lot of movies that take place in the 70s in New York, but a lot of people had offices, and it was just like you walked up a flight of stairs down a hallway and opened a door with a little, you know, the little glass cutout in the front, and you're there, you were in an office. There were right. no secretaries. There was no, like, you have to go through a 100 lobbies. You could walk straight up into somebody's office. So – that's how this setup was. He had no secretary. You just walked upstairs down a hallway, opened the door, boom, there's his office. So not super difficult to murder somebody. Right. Also, this is New York in the late 70s and 80s. This happened all the time. This is right when New York started to turn Times Square over from the prostitution circle it was into what we know it is today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also feel like when you're at that time period, if you're working in any sort of industry that's making an exorbitant amount of money, like you're immediately in danger of making some enemies that might want to kill you. Exactly. So not at all surprised. Since Denoya was alone, no one could identify the assailant. During the investigation, Banerjee's name did appear on a list of suspects, but was quickly dismissed as he was far away and there was no additional info to link him to the crime. Now, Denoya was out of the picture, and Denoya's family sold his his interests in Chippendales back to Banerjee for $1.3 million, which was actually only 10% of its actual worth. Wow. So. What a rip. <laughs> wowzers. Banerjee had one down, but apparently his hit list was growing quite long. Three years later, Banerjee contacts Cologne about setting up another hit. Now, Cologne isn't a dummy, so he knows that he can't do it. <laughs> he, in turn, contacts another person to procure a hitman for Banerjee. The target this time was Michael Fullington and two other former Chippendales dancers who had left the company to form their own male dance troupe, and they were taking the Chippendales trade secrets with them. Ooh, that's of dangerous. Of cocaine and thrusts. <laughs> and thrusts. I know, I'm thinking, so what's the secret? Like, you have to gyrate your hips in a certain direction? Right? I don't understand. It's clockwise, and they knew it was clockwise. <laughs> that clockwise, that yeah. clockwise gyration is right? dangerous. <laughs> now here's the kicker. Now it turns out that the third party hitman that was contracted was actually an FBI informant. <laughs> I'm starting to think that there's more FBI informant hitmen than there are actual hitmen in the world. There really are. <laughs> if it's not the FBI, it's the CIA, guys. Right. So. Right. <laughs> <sighs> so, the FBI staged a sting. <laughs> Banerjee hired the hitman, whose code name was Strawberry. <laughs> cute. So cute. And they decided that they were going to use a cyanide mixture that was mixed by Banerjee himself and was going to be given to old Strawberry to use. There was a fantastic article about this aspect of this case called Cyanide in the Beefcake, and I can't not. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't god. not enjoy that thoroughly. Wow. <laughs> Cyanide in the Beefcake. All right. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> it's real great. I love it so much. <laughs> so the FBI staged their sting operation, and they gathered enough evidence to charge Banerjee with attempted murder, arson, racketeering, and eventually murder of Nick Denoya. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, they even had him on tape bragging about being able to flee back to India if he ever got into trouble in the U.S. So 
Needless to say, the new hit was never completed because they straight up got him. <laughs> now, he knew that they were closing in on him, so he moved his assets of the company over to his wife, Irene, and attempted to set up a, you know, him fleeing to India. It wasn't until 1993 that he was finally arrested. The other kicker in this story is that his wife, Irene, immediately divorced him, <laughs> gaining complete control of the company. <laughs> yes, woman. Uh, good times. Good job. Good now, job. He he pled guilty to racketeering, attempted arson, and murder for hire, but not for the murder of Nick Denoya, because he was like, that was Ray Cologne. Right. Now, he was sentenced for the other three. After this time, after he was sentenced, the time that, like, the shares of his company actually reverted back to Bruce Naheen because... I'm not entirely sure what the issue was with his wife taking it over. I think it was because it was during the trial that it was kind of deemed that that wasn't yeah. copacetic. Like, you can't do that. Yeah. So everything was reverted back to Bruce Naheen, who became the CEO and was the CEO until the end of 1994, when it was sold off to somebody else. Okay. So Banerjee was set to be sentenced, and October 23rd, 1994, he tied his bedsheets together in his cell and hung himself. Wow. Because he knew. Chippendales was eventually, <laughs> yes, Chippendales was eventually sold off to another group, and it still operates today. And yep. like I said, they put out an exercise video last year during the pandemic that you can check out. But that is the sordid tale of Chippendales. <laughs> I was just thinking we must be coming up on the anniversary of that because I've been hearing a lot of chatter recently about the Chippendales whole situation, the murder for mm -hmm. hire plot. I mean, this is you did a very nice yeah. job of giving the succinct version. <laughs> yes, of what there happened. was a podcast that was going to come out. Yeah, and I don't know if it ever launched. But there was somebody was someone was working on a podcast and then they were going to roll it into a TV show. There's a couple TV movies about this. Yeah. There's some stuff out there. There's a book. But I wanted to kind of give the Cliff Notes version because I'm not the kind of person I mean, like you could spend a lot of time talking about the original guy Schneider and all of his, you know, issues, which I'm sure they tapped into in the other podcast. You know, there's a lot of things going around the Chippendales and the people involved with it that was shady. But you tell me someone who was in who was in the entertainment business in the 70s and 80s who wasn't shady. <laughs> right. I know the one that did come out regarding this whole thing was by Wondry. Mm -hmm. So you can check that out if you're interested. But otherwise, if you are looking for something to listen to before you call a hitman, <laughs> maybe don't call a hitman, first of all. Um, but <laughs> check out this podcast. Murder Road Trip is a true crime podcast where I, your host Haley, discuss murder cases in my car, aka the Mobile Beats Lab. Join me and my partner in crime, HH Gnomes, on the road. There will be games, mixtapes, and snacks as I make the research journey to murder scenes around the world. Make sure to check your back seat, and I'll see you at the next rest stop. All right, guys, that has been our show. Thank you so much for joining us. We recently did a live stream, a corn stream. Mm -hmm. So if you missed that, you can check it out. It's up on our YouTube page. Should be yeah. right now. Look at our faces. This is <laughs> this is past me talking about or future me talking about past things. So 
<laughs> Hopefully everything went right and it's up there. If not, oh well. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah. If you liked this episode and you want to hear more like this, you can go to badtastepodcast.com where we have all of our episodes. There's mm-hmm. links to donate. If you want to support the show financially, you can. It'll take you right to our Patreon page where we do have tons of extra back content. What else? What else? What else? Merch. Merchy merch. Merch. Yeah, you can find merch links at the website. We got t-shirts. We got sweatshirts. We got coffee mugs. We got <laughs> stickers, I think. We got mm-hmm. we got all sorts of stuff. I think that's it. Yep, Aroni. <laughs> all right, cool. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Uh, goodbye. Bye. You know, I'm all for, um, just giving people mild inconveniences as revenge, you know? Like, That's kind of what I like. Like, a, like listen. Let a little air out of their tire. Um, yeah. Give them laxative chocolate. You know, just mild inconvenience. It's the slow burning <laughs> gaslighting mm-hmm. kind of like. Yeah. Don't That's call almost more evil. Just, just give them laxative chocolate instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do that. I'm not endorsing that. Janelle can. I'm endorsing a little chaos, okay? Just just a little. <laughs> Some people want to just watch the world burn. I mean, you know, <laughs> it keeps me warm people. at night. <laughs>